The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we can sing of this great truth that you are a God of love. You are a king of love. It need not be that way. You could just be omnipotent and we would be doomed. But you are a king of grace, a king of kindness, of steadfast love and mercy. And we say thank you, thank you, thank you for being who you are, for being that. And for in love making a people. For reaching down to grab a people. Me, others, individuals. Seeing us and calling us, knowing us. Making us into a people. And then more than that, not just leaving us, but as the song said, shepherding us. leading us through life, not just leaving us to our own devices. You are a good, kind God of love, and you are a shepherd to us, your people. You lead us through life. We say thank you for that. And this morning as we come to consider some of the ways that you lead us and then intend for those of us who are parents here, for those of us who have kids at home still, or how you mean to lead our kids through us. So I include all of us, Lord. We, we need to be led by what we hear this morning, and, and many of us are actively leading others and need to know how to lead them with what we hear this morning. So we say thank you for providing it, but I ask you, Lord, to, to open our eyes and to see what it is that you have for us as you shepherd us and make us under-shepherds. We see something this morning about how you lead us and how you mean us to lead. And I pray, Lord, that you would open our eyes and help us to understand it, to grab hold of it in thankfulness, to think it through and apply it. Your kindness, Lord, it is, is vast. As was prayed earlier, we would be lost in our folly if you did not stoop to inform and lead. So do that now, I pray. Would you by your Spirit, Father, by your Spirit, would you move through the room here and lead us, lead us away from folly and into wisdom, away from sin and towards you, away from a life of loss and despair and towards a life of, of fruitfulness and fullness by your Spirit, accomplish some of that even this morning here and incline us towards a path that will produce long-term fruit. Draw near this morning, Lord. Help us, teach us, guide us. Clear away all distractions, all, all physical, material distractions, whatever those may be, and clear away spiritual distractions, Lord. If there is sin that, that remains on us that we need to confess, speak to individuals even now and lead them in confession and repentance. 
open up the path to you. Thank you now, Lord, be our teacher, we ask. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. This morning is, our, is the third Sunday in our five-week series on the topic of parenting. Our custom is to preach through whole books of the Bible. We finished the book of Philippians a little bit ago, and we will soon undertake a study of the Gospel of Luke. But in between such longer studies, often we, we change the pace a little bit and move towards something smaller, shorter, often topical, like the topic of parenting, for instance. We began two weeks ago in the book of Ephesians, chapter 6, and we saw there that the most important thing about that passage, and really, as I tried to emphasize again and again and again and again and again that morning, the most important thing about that passage and about this whole series is, in fact, the context in which the specific words about parenting sit. The context of the filling of the Spirit. That's the most important thing about Ephesians 6 and the most important thing about parenting. If we are to be parents or kids, families, if we are to be families as God intends for us to be, the filling of the Spirit, the controlling of God's Spirit of us, or to switch the language and use language from Philippians, which we just finished, a people who are having all of our needs supplied by God from his great wealth, a people in whom God is at work to will and to work according to his good pleasure. To be a people, kids or parents in this particular case, in which God is at work, controlling, directing, and driving. We could almost end the series right there. That's the most important thing about parenting. However, there is more to be said about parenting, like we saw last week in Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy 6, a very important passage. Moses commanded the people of God there themselves and then to teach to their children all of the commandments, all of the requirements of God, particularly the great commandment, the great requirement to love the Lord their God with all of their heart, soul, mind, and strength and your neighbors yourself. It begins with the famous hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. There is only one God. He is the one and only, and he is to hold all of our attention, all of our loyal allegiance in the heart. We teach the requirements of God in the context of this great God, and as the passage continues to show there, Deuteronomy 6 shows, and the saving work of God. You teach the requirements in the context of the saving work of God. You teach what he requires in the context of his gospel of grace pinnacle of whom of which is Christ. Teach that all the time when you're coming into your home, when you're going out of your home, when you're rising up, when you're lying down, constantly teach them Christ. As we talked about last week. And now this week we are still considering instruction, but of a slightly different sort, the teaching of wisdom. We'll be talking really about wisdom the next several weeks. The rest of the series is going to relate to wisdom and, and be kind of rooted in the book of Proverbs. We begin this morning talking about teaching wisdom. And so here's my main point for this morning. Parents, diligently teach your children wisdom. Last week it was diligently teach Christ. This week it's diligently teach wisdom. And to get at this point, I'm going to touch on a number of different passages, most from Proverbs, but the main passage I'll read first is the beginning of Proverbs chapter 1, verses 1 to 7. We'll start there and then kind of move on to some other places. Let me read that passage, 
And then I'm going to make four observations, which I know is a massive break with tradition. But I'm going to make four <laughs> observations. First time in 10 years I've done that. <laughs> It'll be okay. <laughs> Proverbs chapter 1, verses 1 to 7. The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel. To know wisdom and instruction, to understand words of insight, to receive instruction in wise dealing, in righteousness, justice, and equity, to give prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the youth. Let the wise hear and increase in learning, and the one who understands obtain guidance. To understand a proverb and a saying, the words of the wise and their riddles. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. We'll begin there. Here's the first observation. Teach your children wisdom that leads to life by teaching them to fear the Lord. Teach your children wisdom that leads to life by teaching them to fear the Lord. All these are phrased as a teach your children, but again, I remind us, even if you are a child or if you don't have children at home, if you think just a, a half turn off of the direct statement, you can see, oh, this applies to me too. And that should be really clear as we're talking about wisdom. If I don't have any kids, if I never thought about kids, this is going to apply to you too. But in parenting, I'm speaking to parents, teach your children the wisdom that leads to life by teaching them to fear the Lord. Verse 1 begins, the Proverbs of Solomon. And a proverb in the Bible is just like a proverb in, in ordinary life, modern usage. It's a statement that's often short and catchy to kind of help it be memorable, often short and catchy, that's trying to convey something that is generally true, but is not quite law. This is quite important to understand. A proverb is, is communicating something that is generally true, should always be considered, is ignored to your peril, but is not a law that 100% all the time on God's sworn promise without fail is true. It's not a law. But it's generally true and should always be considered. And what we have here in this book are the Proverbs the sayings, the riddles, not that they are confusing, but that they need to be thought about. The Proverbs given by God to Solomon and relayed to us, either written by him or compiled by him. The second verse, look at all the similar words that begin to pile up here in verses 2, 3, 4 that tell us how we are to approach this. And really, to preach through the book of Proverbs would be a, a very difficult task, preach through the whole book, because oftentimes the Proverbs, are you've got to take them and you've got to kind of sit and just think about them. And all these words piled up, press that upon us. We are to, to face the Proverbs here, to know wisdom and instruction, to understand words of insight. What we have here is that somebody else has gained insight somehow or another. God's given it to him. And is passing that on and we are to 
understand these words of insight. We are to receive them from outside of us. The reader should hear instruction from the outside so as to understand wise dealing, it says. That is, to know what is wise dealing. And as I encounter people in the world, as I encounter circumstances in the world, as, as this happens and that arises, what does wisdom, that is, what is righteousness and justice and equity, into verse 3? What does that look like here? How would that be expressed in this situation? What's prudent right now? The simple need to know that. Verse 4. Gives prudence to the simple. The youth particularly need to know that. Even if they don't think they need to know that. They need to know that. In our fallenness, we assume we are wise. And we need to be told, actually, you're not. God needs to give to us wisdom, and we need to know what is right, what is true, to hear it from outside of us and understand it. So there's a, a step of humility in this that connects to verse 7's main point. There's a step of humility in this that tells us, I should listen. And that's actually the first step in wisdom. Let the wise hear and increase. The first step that you're, first sign you're on the path to wisdom is that you stop and listen to others. Instruct. The simple need to know, the youth in particular need to know. Let the wise hear and they will increase in learning and understanding and obtain guidance. Again, to be clear here, when it talks about words like knowledge and learning, we, we are not, in this context, we are not talking about something we might say like, like book knowledge. Facts. Facts are part of it, but that's not the main focus. This is not a knowledge that is just kept and could be written down on a piece of paper, but in this context, we talk about knowledge or learning or understanding. We're talking about Knowledge applied, lived out in life. So it's a, a word like prudence fits, discretion fits. I know this, but now what should I do with it? I've got this fact and I understand all the ins and outs of it, but now what? That's where wisdom comes in. So you can have an uneducated man who is wise and a Ph.D. who's a fool. According to what the Bible means by wisdom and knowledge and learning and understanding. You can have a Ph.D. who's a fool and you can have a person who's never gone to school a day in his or her life and is wise. Because of verse 7's great reality. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools, though, despise wisdom and instruction. By fear of the Lord, or, or the fear of God, the Bible means something other than abject terror or a cringing kind of avoidance of something that you fear. Instead, Perhaps we should capture it with words like reverence and awe. 
To fear the Lord is to regard Him with reverence and awe. And included in that is a great concern, a sober, careful concern, not to reject or ignore or to otherwise treat Him lightly. So all wisdom, all understanding, all knowledge of the facts and how to live them out in life, what is prudent and what discretion looks like here, takes into account the Lord whom I revere and regard with awe and am careful not to cross. If I'm going to live out what I, the facts that I know in life, it has to match up with this great reality. A little bit like if you if you're think about, if you're in construction or if you're an architect or something like that, you cannot work separate from the great reality of gravity. You're a fool to draw up plans or to try to construct something and not factor in gravity is. It's so elemental that you never even forget about it. You, you just obviously know, I can't build this thing like that unless I counteract gravity. That's Everything I do includes gravity. I have to live with that in front in my mind. And it's so front, you probably forget about it. God is. And you can't do anything. You can't proceed in life without that fact front, first, foremost. God is. This one is. And I can't move ahead wisely, overlooking, denigrating, ignoring, rejecting. This is the first basic principle. The God of the Bible, hear, O Israel, the Lord, He, this, this particular God, Yahweh, the Lord, the God of the Bible, is. And He is the only one who is. He is awesome and majestic in holiness. He is the very essence of what is right and just and equitable. Verse 3. That's all defined by Him and who He is and what He is. He is immeasurably mighty and His law is all-encompassing and His knowledge of us is perfect and clear and exact. He Himself, therefore, is the defining reality of life and everything that happens happens before him, is subject to him, is judged by him, and he is the one to whom we must give account. He is always right. And therefore, thankfully because he is good, everything that he says is right and is good. So when he lays out a path and gives instruction and inclines us towards a direction, it is the right one and it is the good one. And to reject that and say, no, I know better, is folly. And futile. This reality, this God, is the start. If we want to proceed in life, He is the beginning. And all wisdom begins with the fear of Him. And when fools despise wisdom and, re- and instruction, when they reject the Lord, or as, as verse 22 says, 22 and following, and the simple ones who delight in scoffing and hate knowledge. They choose to reject the fear of the Lord. And they will have nothing to do with wisdom's counsel. The result is, they will eat their own fruit, the text says, and be killed. 
destroyed in their turning away. Verses 32, 31, 32. Not so, though, verse 33. Not so with the wise. Whoever listens to me will dwell secure and will be at ease without dread of disaster. This one, the wise one, the one who listens to wisdom, which begins with the fear of the Lord, he will know life and rest and security now and forever. We need this. Parents, our kids need this. The fear of the Lord. You are setting your child up for success in life if you press into him press into her nurture in him or her a godward vision in all things a fear of the lord biblically speaking a reverence and an awe of this god and a great concern not to deviate not to reject not to cross him but to regard him as high and exalted to see this great reality as majestic to see him as isaiah's god and as ezekiel's god as moses's god holy 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 to regard this God this way and to teach your children to regard this God this way. In other words, like most people don't. You realize, I'm, I'm talking and I, I'm exhorting and I'm speaking in a way that, that sh- I know the words are very familiar to you. Let's be real though, come on. Most people in America and, and many of us regard God as a great guy. Like that. He's, he's great, and he's a guy. I mean, like me, but a little bit better. Most people think like that, really. I, you don't officially profess that, but we very often interact with God as if he's a great guy. And perhaps foremost in our mind is gentle lamb, meek and mild. Now, very carefully, Indeed, 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 the Lamb of God is tremendously, remarkably humble. The meekness of Christ as he goes to the cross, willingly submitting himself to people, to humans, to death on a cross as a servant, is stunning. And Philippians 2 is all about that, but Philippians 2 is stunning because of who he actually is. It would not be remotely stunning if he was simply a great guy. But he is the Holy One. It must start there. And that's that's what makes the contrast remarkable and alarming and grabbing and wooing. That he is the Holy, Holy, Holy One who dwells in a temple that is smoking and shaking in Isaiah 6. That's God. To see that is the beginning of all wisdom. And you can't get it without it. You cannot be wise if you don't see that him first. It is critical that we view God as that, as high and lifted up, enthroned in the holies, when it comes around time to consider 
whose counsel I want to listen to and whose advice I want to take and whose agenda do I want to serve and whose life do I want to copy and pursue. If I don't have this weighing in the balance, I have lost and you have deprived them of a great, great ally, a great, great tool in the fight for wisdom. That vision, we need it, our kids need it, and so we must teach them, must press into them. The fear of the Lord is critical. So we want them to know wisdom for life, and we get that into them. We help them to get that by teaching them to fear the Lord. To love the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. Deuteronomy 6. He must occupy center place in us. He must control our hearts and theirs. That's what takes us to the second point. A significant point of emphasis in the wisdom literature, and just a little bit of a clue is where we're going here. Points two and three are, are closely related, but I've separated them out because it might help us think about them differently. Second point, teach your children to guard their hearts and help them do so. Teach your children to guard their hearts and help them do so. Proverbs 4, verse 23 says, Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flows, flow the springs of life. 4.23 Which is how the Proverbs is expressing what Jesus taught over and over again in many different ways. Mark 7, for instance. It comes out of the heart, shows itself in life. Jesus, the proverb, just making this connection of the heart is the spring, and the water flows out. The stream flows out of the spring. The, the headwaters within, and the river comes out. So the proverb doesn't say, keep your behavior in line with all vigilance. There's plenty about behavior here, for sure. Plenty about behavior in, in the Bible, for sure. But the emphasis again and again and again is keep the heart with all vigilance. If you think about a, a, a river, a, a polluted river, for instance, you could clean up that river water right there, but it's coming from somewhere. And if, if you look downstream and there's a factory dumping into it, you've got to address the factory, don't you? You can't just clean up the river constantly. You've got to address where it's coming from. So we must attend to the heart. Keep it. Protect it, this heart of yours. Which is not just a statement about the emotional center of a person. Sometimes you hear this verse applied. Keep your heart. Guard your heart. Sometimes you hear that applied in kind of romantic dating settings. Guard your heart. Don't fall too hard for that guy. Heard that a hundred times. Don't, don't fall head over heels for him. You know, be careful. Guard your heart because you don't know what he's like yet, he's, if he's really committed or not, which is good advice, just not what we're exactly talking about here. 
It talks about the heart. The Bible means something more than just my emotional love center. It means my control center, a person's control center, as opposed to the, the outside, the, ex, the expression of, the inside, where it comes from. So the heart, the place inside of a person where we value and where we desire and where we judge and decide and choose, even where we think, so things come into us and we process them in there, judging and evaluating and deciding and choosing, and then something comes out. Address this. Tend to guard this. God wisely counsels us to take care of the heart. And unfortunately, many of us, while we, while we know that, we tend much more consistently and much more vigilantly to the outside. I mean, just, if you think just physically, we spend a lot more time thinking about the, the carbs and the high fructose corn syrup that we take into our bodies than we do to what we're watching on TV, listening to on the radio. Very often. But then we move that down a level and we, and we come to parenting very often, unfortunately, we parents, we tend easily to lapse into addressing behavior and guarding behavior and curtailing behavior and stopping this and encouraging that and putting a limit on this. And it's all trying to clean up the river. And there's a factory back there spewing out. So he directs us to the heart. Now, in talking about guarding our hearts, we, we must acknowledge that even if we lived all by ourselves in the middle of the forest, we would still have to guard our hearts. Even if there were no external inputs coming into us, the Bible says that our hearts themselves are fallen. Our hearts themselves would do a great job of producing thoughts and ideas and motivations and interests that if we then process them wrongly, apart from the fear of the Lord, would lead us to express lives of loss. So we always need to guard our hearts. That's the truth about us. We have a problem inside to start with. But worse than that, we live in a world, we don't live in the woods, we live in a world that is constantly all around us pressing we live, we live in a, a hyper-media world. We live in the middle of a network that exists, almost literally exists, to sell us the world. You, I mean, you know this, but we don't often think about it. You are constantly being marketed to. Your kids are constantly being marketed Somebody's always trying to sell them something, sometimes a product, literally a product being sold for money, but a worldview, an influence, an idea. It's always, we don't just live in the woods with the things coming out, out from inside. It's coming at us. And part of guarding our hearts is to protect the gate, to, to hold there. When things come at us, to hold them out for ourselves and, and for our kids. It's part of it. What's allowed in, and then, importantly, how it's processed when it gets in, because you can't stop it from getting in. And even if you could, again, it would come up from inside anyway. 
So to guard our hearts and to help our kids guard their hearts and to guard their hearts for them involves protecting what comes in and then how it gets processed in here. So teach this to your children and teach them about what's going on all around them and teach them that they are not just operating willy-nilly in the world, but that they are objects of influence. Teach them how things come in and how things process. Do you know how that works? Do you know how it works for you? Consider an example. And I could have made a different example for, for younger kids. I'm going to pick an example that's very common for teenagers, uh, boys and girls alike, although it often gets talked about in relation to girls. Clothing and modesty. Issue of clothing and modesty. We have to teach kids, we parents and those around have to teach kids to guard their hearts in relation to the issue of, let's say, clothing and modesty. Not just teach them not to wear that. How much time is wasted on arguing about that top or those pants? Wasted. That's cleaning up the river and the factory's still at work. We have to talk to them and talk with them about what's going on inside of here. So, an example, the conversation might trace along the paths of why do people, I sometimes find it helpful to talk about, not about you, but about people, why do people wear that? I had a conversation recently with somebody who said, that the main line of argument was, don't you know that just makes the boys look at you? And I thought, yeah, that is the point. That's not the answer, that's the point. I'm trying to get them to look at me. Yeah, right, okay, why? Why do you want them to look at you? And how do you want them to look at you? And why is it so important to you, or, or to, to people? To people, not you, exactly, people. What's going on in here? It's about, some, somehow or another, it's going to come down the line of it's about significance, it's about importance, about acceptance, about value, about beauty, about this is something about my identity, something that says I'm, I'm good, I'm in, I'm cool, I'm valued. Something in that realm. Okay, yeah, I get that. I used to be there. In some ways, I still am. I understand that. As you analyze your own heart, you understand where this, you know, where people's hearts are. And then you can move on to talk about. So how steady, how sturdy, how helpful, how consistent is the approval of people out there? You ever struggled with one day they like you, one day they don't? Yes, of course. So you're going to be constantly running on this treadmill, right? Constantly running to try to get their approval. This person's, these people, that boy's approval and acceptance. Yeah, I get tiring for you at all? Yeah. Somewhere in there, the conversation can move to, 
Is there another place to find acceptance and approval? Significance and value? Another place to be loved? You talk about the Lord who bestows favor and honor. You talk about the quote that was up here on the screen before, the, the Tim Keller quote. I don't have to prove anything to anybody. If I live in the gospel, I am accepted. But you have to move one step further. Because what you did there is you still left them with a heart that is still most concerned about me. I just moved them hopefully off of, or, or at least illuminated, people approving of me, God approving of me. I'm still most concerned with me. We need to move on to where we fear the Lord, love Him above all things, and am not concerned about me. And that is your satisfaction. That's a, that's a big conversation. Obviously, I skipped most of it because how do you have a conversation like this with me to you like this? But you need to talk with kids about this is what's going on inside of your heart behind that choice of jeans or this choice of dress or that choice of muscle shirt. That's what's going on behind there in people's hearts and in your heart. And this is where you're chasing a false hope and can find it actually met in Christ and even better, can find Christ to be life, not just Christ's acceptance of you. You can find Christ to be life and you can walk in pleasure and fullness of joy with Him. So what we're trying to do in that conversation is build a heart that says, I receive from the outside, from my friends, from the advertisements, a perspective that says, I need to dress like this to be somebody. And I hope in conversation to reshape that, to say, no, I, standing in Christ, am somebody, but actually more importantly, he is somebody. And I'm most concerned about him. So there's a no, not that dress, no, not those pants, and there's a yes, Christ, who is the satisfaction of your heart. A conversation with them that teaches them where things are coming from into their hearts and how to process it on the inside. Now, if you're, if you're a parent, it's possible that you just thought, oh, for crying out loud, how am I ever going to do that? It's a lot easier to say, no, you're not wearing that out of the house. You're right, it is a lot easier. Draw on a piece of paper two XY charts. You know, these things in math, I don't remember what they're called. Draw two crosses there. I'm taking this from a book I read. I didn't make this up. The X on both, both of your diagrams is time. And the Y on the first one is power, and the Y on the other one is influence. You're a parent with your child. You have, at the beginning of time, at point zero, you have total power. And that drops off at age 1, and age 2, and age 12, and age 22. 
as time goes on, you have no power. No stops working. No's real easy at first and impossible later. The other one, time and influence, goes the other way. You have no influence on an infant. You can't reason to him. You can't talk. You can't do anything. You have to exercise power. I pick you up. I put you over here. I can't convince you to move. You can't. I have zero influence. And the tragedy, the tragedy of the person who works in no is that you have zero influence. And by age two, you have zero influence. And by age 12, you have zero influence. And by age 22, you have zero influence. So you lay those two graphs over each other and you have no power and no influence, woe is you. you got to get them going like this. Zero influence, rising, 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 while power is falling, 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 falling. So by age 12, they know full well they can get it done behind your back, but they want to know what you think. And by age 22, they don't have to do it behind your back, they just do it right in front of you. But they want to know what you think. That takes a ton of work. And that's what parenting is. That's what parenting is. Police officers have the luxury of saying, no. And I take you to jail, and then I give you back to your parents. <laughs> it's not parenting. But, for, but parenting is a ton of work over a long course of time. The conversation that I just very briefly laid out, and you're wondering, how in the world could I ever do that? Absolutely, that's challenging. Of course, that's confusing, and indeed, that's daunting, and that's the only way to parent. Because you must parent at the heart. You must parent by lifting up in front of this Young person, it must start young, this young person, the fear of the Lord and a desire to not talk at them, but to talk with them about how they are, about what they're doing and what would be good for them. I am your ally for your good. Not your enemy to curtail your behavior. I'm your ally for your good. And the choices are not between what is good and what is right. The choices are between what is good and what seems to be good, but isn't. This comes up really clearly. Okay, third point here now, which is obviously very closely related. Here's the third point, but I'm still kind of in the same vein. Teach your children to choose their company carefully and help them to do so. So we're talking, so that point there about it, the choice is not between what is right and what is good. It's between what is good and what seems to be good. Comes up really clearly and interestingly, the first thing that Solomon moves to, and he, after his introduction, the first thing he moves to is talking about choosing your friends. Verse 8, Hear, my son, your father's instruction, forsake not your mother's teaching. They're graceful garland for your head and pendants for your neck. My son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. If they say, come with us. And the example gets very specific about violent theft, violent robbery. But the point is general, verse 15. My son, do not walk in the way with them. Hold back your foot from their paths. 
for their feet run to evil. Notice what he says there. He clarifies for him. This that they do, that they invite you to do, is evil. He puts them before God who will judge. It is not just an unwise, unhealthy, not good thing. It is evil. He makes it very clear. And then, keeping the same point about the choices between what is good and what seems to be good, then he puts right in front of him, For in vain is a net spread in the sight of any bird, but these men lie in wait for their own blood. They set an ambush for their own lives. Such are the ways of everyone who is greedy for unjust gain. It takes away the life of its possessors. My son, I know this looks awesome. It, it's, it's fun, it's exciting, it's kind of cool. It feels like a little bit of a power trip, kind of something a little bit edgy, a little dangerous, and it lines your pockets with some free money. That's that's. That's cool. It's attractive. I get it. You feel like you're a tough person. It's evil, and it is suicidal. I am not your enemy to try to keep you from doing what would embarrass me in public. I'm your friend trying to keep you from killing yourself. This looks wonderful. It looks awesome. It looks so inviting. And they lie in wait for their own blood. They raise the knife and stab themselves. Don't do that. This is critical. This, it's, it's a direct appeal to the son's best interest. And that is right in the heart of how we have to parent to gain influence. We stand beside them and say, when I'm talking to you about clothes or about which friends you can choose or which path to walk, I'm not against you. I'm for you. And I'm telling you, I've walked a little bit further than you. I know a little bit more than you. And I can tell you that path is attractive and there's a cliff right over there. I want what's best for you. I want what's good for you. And starting young and consistently pressing that, they believe it because it's true. You are wanting what's best for them and not what's just good for you. So you appeal directly to them and talk to them about what false choices what false offers are, what is deceptive, and, and what's actually true. This is an extremely consistent theme in Proverbs because what's going on constantly in all of life for all of us, in the issues of righteousness and wickedness, and in particular in young people as they're growing up, what's going on constantly is a chasing after what is good. And we always go looking for it in all the wrong places, given our fallenness. So wisdom is guiding us. The Proverbs are constantly guiding us. Look at chapter 2 of Proverbs. Over and over again, it grabs this theme of saying that wisdom, this path of the fear of the Lord and following God, is the good life. Really, it is. And the other path is one of deception and death. Verse 6, The Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth comes knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright he is a shield to those who walk in integrity, guarding the paths of justice, watching over the way of his saints. You will be shielded and guarded and protected. And being shielded, you can rest along this path, the path of the Lord, the path of wisdom. 
Discretion will watch over you, verse 11. Understanding will guard you, delivering you from the way of evil, from men of perverted speech who forsake the paths of uprightness to walk in the ways of darkness, who rejoice in doing evil and delight in the perverseness of evil, men whose paths are crooked and who are devious in their ways. In particular, the forbidden woman. We have to help children choose their companions and in particular, choose sexual companions. Now Solomon, speaking to his son, launches off on this and then goes on for chapter after chapter after chapter because it's a big deal. It's a massive issue for men and particularly for growing up young men. And Solomon's real clear. I, th- I think it's probably um, prudent for us to be discreet about this, but also to be clear enough, this applies to women too. And there's a movie in the theaters right now talking about this, or not talking about this, targeting women on this issue. There is probably not another area in life that has so much of a This seems good and desirable and right. Facade to it. That behind the facade of which there is clear death. Sometimes physical death. Certainly emotional and relational death. And sometimes eternal death. And he is so clear repeatedly about this. So you will be delivered from the forbidden woman. Walk the path of wisdom with God and you will be delivered from the forbidden woman, from the adulteress with her smooth words. He doesn't need to explain why the smooth words are attractive. Who forsakes the companion of her youth and forgets the covenant of her God. For her house sinks down to death and her paths to the departed. None who go to her come back, nor do they regain the paths of life. This is a father talking to his son about what's going on in his heart, particularly in relation to his companions and particularly in relation to a female companion and the offer laid out in front of him. Now this goes on for chapters. And he always lines it up with smooth, Appeal. Death. Smooth attraction. Oh. Death. Constance sets it up like that and says, avoid the adulteress, which is interesting. Not just thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not hang out with people like that. Don't walk down that street. Don't walk the path of the guys who want to lie in wait and rob. It's about companionship, even before it's about behavior. That's why I include this under the point of we must help our kids to think through and choose their friends. Not just about the behaviors, but the friends who might incline them to the behaviors. That's part of guarding the heart, part of guarding the gate about what might come into the heart. 
It's to guard the friends that they are around. Now, there's a lot of variation in this. That might mean that you can never see Johnny, and it might mean that when you see Johnny, we talk through what happened and help you process it. I, I don't know what the right answer is for Johnny and Sally and Billy. I mean, I, I mean, we've got all kinds of people all around us, and sometimes it's wise to expose kids to certain things and then process with them to help them to guard their hearts. And sometimes it's better just to never see that particular child. That's wisdom on you. I don't know what the right answer is to that. But the point is, help them to think it through and help them to choose, and sometimes choose for them. Choose their companions, their friends. And finally, oh man. <laughs> the fourth point, which I'll, I'll try to be brief with here, but I am going to go a little over. So if you need to get kids, I'm, I'm sorry, but I need to say this. Because, with that last point, talking about companions, talking about my son delivered from the forbidden woman, from the adulteress with her smooth words, a great big question arises there. Really? Solomon? (laughs) I mean, okay. This has got to be like the biggest example of do what I say, don't do what I do. So that raises a a whole question here. And I'm not going to address the the question of integrity. I'm just going to say you have to walk the walk. You can't just talk the talk. Or the influence thing does not grow. Obviously. Kids real quick figure out hypocrisy. So that's that's an issue. But let me address it in this way. Here's the fourth point. Sin, failure, and folly should point us back to the only one who is truly wise. Sin, failure, and folly should point us back to the only one who is truly wise. Proverbs presents two paths consistently, and as I said, they are stark. It It is the attractive path that seems good, but is death. And then the other path that is, in fact, good. So there's, there's this, this black and white divergence of paths here. There's the path of wisdom, the path of folly, the path of good, the path of evil. And never the two shall meet. And it's presented like that to help root out of us our, our tendency towards natural, fuzzy optimism. Maybe I can get away with it. No, you can't. Death. It's presented like that. In absolute terms. Sometimes that can leave a person stuck under a pile of despair and condemnation because you read this, you hear me talking, and the ship has already sailed. I mean, there, frankly, a, a number of, of kids, you, I mean, you're a teenager, you're old enough, you realize, I've already done some stuff that I shouldn't do, and I already feel like I, I'm kind of a failure in this. And parents, worse, I mean, we've only been talking about this for a couple weeks, and I've had several conversations with different parents who've said something like the, I wish I'd heard this or wish I had actually listened to this years ago, and now my adult children and grandchildren are reaping the bad fruit 
Maybe even they don't realize they are, but I realize they are. And sometimes that's been expressed to me through tears. The answer is not to deny this and say, oh, actually, that's not true. I had nothing to do with it. I parented just fine. Obviously, I don't know how you parent. I don't know who you are, but, but that's not the answer to, to pretend that you actually did do the parenting job that God has in front of you. It's not the answer. The answer is to take your own sin, maybe your own parenting sin, see it for what it is, call it what it is, and let sin, failure, and folly point you back to the only one who is truly wise. This book has only been done once by Christ. None of us are truly and fully wise. None of us fear the Lord like we should. None of us regard him as holy. None of us walk his path alone. None of us have guarded our hearts perfectly, kept ourselves from corruption, lived righteousness and justice and equity, kept his law. None of us have, which is why God sent his son to be wisdom for us. God sent Christ to be wisdom. 1 Corinthians talks about this in the context of of larger wisdom discussion going on in Corinth. There's a phrase there, Christ, who is our wisdom, that is, our righteousness and our sanctification and our redemption. Christ is the embodiment of wisdom. He is righteousness for us, given to you to cover your folly, to forgive your sin. So the awesome news for you, person who's failed, person who's walked in folly and in sin, parent who's failed, the awesome news for you is the gospel actually is true. And Christ has come to redeem you from, to cover over folly with grace and forgiveness. That is awesome. That is good news. You must, 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 can, can, can believe that. There is no condemnation on those who are in Christ, says the Bible. And then as you turn and you look at but my kids, there, there probably is not much that's more grievous in life than to look at your own kids' suffering and to be able to clearly trace it back to, and that's because of me. That's hard for a parent to take. So how do you, how do you, process, how do you deal with that? Well, how you deal with that is you say, the gospel's true for me, there is no condemnation on me, and then you remind yourself, actually, I don't have enough power to save him or her. Yes, the whole reason we're talking about parenting is that yes, God intends to use us parents as significant, important, first-tier tools in his toolbox of, of working on kids to draw them to Christ and to incline them towards him. Absolutely, that's why we're talking about this. But you are not a decisive tool. Salvation is of the Lord, not of you. There should be great relief in that. There should be great relief in that. God chooses. God calls. God works. God saves. I don't. I don't save and I don't condemn. 
As a parent, yeah, perhaps there is some sin or a lot of sin in your parenting past. Go to Christ, repent of it, experience his forgiveness, know there is no condemnation. Maybe you might want to go to your even adult kids now and, and apologize for that and say, I now see I should have walked a different path in my parenting with you. That might be a critical element in pointing them back towards Christ. Maybe. So maybe you need to talk to them. Maybe you just need to sit before the Lord and say, help me to believe there's no condemnation and then pray. You are not strong enough to save your kids and you are not strong enough to ruin them. We don't have that much power. We entrust our kids to God who is good and who always does what is right with them. We pray, we preach, and we leave the results to Him. And see that actually holding in front of us what we should be and aren't, instead of being crushing and condemning, should be a cause for rejoicing that God has forgiven even me. Maybe you, need, you might need to be saved this morning. Maybe you're not even a Christian. You might need to see that my sin, your sin, before God is condemnation, is, is his judgment on you. And that's why he sent the Son to the cross. To take your sin onto himself and to pay for it with his life for those who trust him. Surrender their lives to him and say, here, have me. I trust you. Maybe you need to do that. And Christian parent, maybe you need to do that again. Not to be saved again, but to experience his cleansing. His removal of guilt off of you. We are to diligently teach our children wisdom. Teach them to fear the Lord. Teach them to guard their hearts. Teach them to choose their companions wisely and teach them to turn to Christ when they don't. Let me pray. Father, would you shape us as a people to be parents and families that you want us to be? Would you incline our hearts to believe your goodness. Lord, if there are some here who don't know you, I pray that you would draw them to you. If there are some here who are laboring under, under weight, I pray that you would release them. I pray that you would incline all of us to walk in wise surrender, to guard our hearts from which life comes. Lord, thank you for being a shepherd to us, your people now. Not just being a God of love who saves, but a God of love who shepherds. Guide us down the path of wisdom, we pray. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. 
Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121. 